0: Welcome to the Masters of Data Podcast, the podcast that brings the human to data. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. One of the most controversial and discussed topics today is artificial intelligence or AI and the implications of it. Is AI good or bad? Are we being replaced? Is AI exacerbating discrimination? Our guests today are taking a much more practical view one that seeks to capture the value of AI for business and help corporations large and small take advantage and compete. Our guests today are Marco City, the David Sarnoff Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School, and Kareem Lakhani, the Charles E. Wilson Professor of Business Administration and the Dorothy and Michael Hintz Fellow at Harvard Business School. They have just released the book, Competing in the Age of AI, which we're gonna talk about today. So without any further ado, Let's dig in. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Masters of Data podcast. And i uh, very excited about our episode today. Um, as, as as always, we try to bring interesting people on the podcast, and I think we've succeeded beyond our wildest dreams today with uh, with uh, our two guests. So we have two professors from uh, the Harvard School of Business, and we have Marco uh, Young City and uh, Kareem Lakhani uh, Welcome on to uh, the podcast. It's good to have you here
1: thanks ben good great to be, to be here
0: you. yeah you guys have uh, you guys have a long history in this space particularly around the you know the things we're going to be talking about today um and you know and i th- i think maybe a good a good place to start is based on where you guys are coming from and your experience in the space what made you decide to write this book so let's, let's let's actually you know say the book here the book you guys just released competing in the age of ai i read it loved it i think it's an amazing uh you know book for the time but let we take a step back, why, why did you guys decide this is the right time to write a book like this?
1: Well, it's an interesting question. Like, we've been at this for a while. We've been, uh, I think, for the last 10 years, really, we've been uh, looking at digital transformation and the change in nature of our economy and technological change. Uh, you know, Kareem and I have been uh, kind of working on this for a while together. We taught classes together. We got in trouble with companies together. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, we, we love to get in trouble. Um, and, um, you know, I think after a bunch of years of doing this stuff, it started to really dawn on us that more than just individual things, individual events, like individual things going being different, new use cases, new cool algorithm applications, new cool uh, software, something really fundamental was beginning to change in the way that our economy works and the way that Mm -hmm. firms work within the economy, uh, which, you know, for us in a business school, it's kind of a big deal because like we worry a lot about firms and managers and those kinds of things. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, it almost felt like there was so much technology out there right now that there is really a critical mass of applications built on it that there's a whole range of companies where the technology itself, the algorithms, the AI, the digital networks that make up the technology components were becoming the core of the firm. You know, in other words, for hundreds of years, since industrial revolutions, firms have been about, you know, people, managers, workers. And then eventually, you know, so we started sprinkling a little bit of information technology to make the managers and workers more productive. And all of a sudden, the, the firms are becoming almost technology first. Like if you look at yeah, who was doing things? You know, who was making decisions? Who was doing the stuff in companies? Was
2: doing the work of the firm itself. Yeah,
1: yeah. Who was really delivering the value that the firms deliver to customers? Increasingly, it was the technology and it was not the people.
2: And, and a little bit of history on top of this, you know, both of us have studied the software industry one way or the other. Uh, you know, Marco had looked at you know ecosystems in the software industry, looking at Microsoft in the '90s and the 2000s. And I started. I became an academic to understand the open source software movement, hmm. and both of the both of those the software industry has been through so many iterations. And what was interesting to us was that the iterations we saw the software industry go through were now also happening in other adjacent industries or even faraway industries, like we never imagined. Like I laugh when the people say, "Well, Uber is a technology company." <laughs> no, it's a transportation company. But yeah. Uber has brought broad technology to the transportation industry has made it effectively a software business, right? Same with Airbnb, right? And so on and so forth or in financial and banking. And so the dynamics of what we saw happen in the software business are now happening across all industries. And then that's a big deal because the way you structure yourself is very different in a traditional steel company versus in a software company. And now with these AI first uh, companies as well.
0: Yeah. That that makes a lot of sense. And do you, do you feel, because you know, I you 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 have the quote in the beginning of your book from uh, Satya Nadella at, at um, Microsoft about AI eh, as a new runtime, and I mean that comes up again and again in the book. And it, do you do you feel like this is kind of the next stage of this whole thing that Mark Andreessen said about software eating the world? Is this is this kind of really because I like the way I like the way you put it, Kareem. The the whole idea that it's not. It's not just about you know all these companies becoming software companies. They're they're applying the technology and AI and things to a business sector to revolutionize it. So does it is it kind of the continuation of what you know Mark pointed out in the early two thousands? Or one
2: hundred percent. I mean, and re, the recent quote is so prescient. And in fact, you know, we started this course at Harvard Business School on digital innovation and transformation, and the first in two thousand and thirteen, and the first class starts with them reading software is eating the world at that time. We pressure in sort of observing how this was the big driver. And what we say is that it's software, it's platforms, it's data, it's analytics, as eating up the world. And and not just eating it up, but in fact, reconfiguring the world, reconfiguring organizations in, in the process.
1: Yeah, the basic unit of analysis for us is, is the firm in this. Like, right? And I think what's happened that uh, beyond software eating away at bits and pieces of the firm and beginning to go from a core of software in the software industry to industries like banking, when there's a lot of IT uh, across a whole variety of different functions or to the hotel industry where there's IT running a bunch of different processes. The the whole firm is now becoming, it's turning inside out. Mm -hmm. Where where essentially the software is managing the firm in many different ways and telling the people what to do. Uh, Where the, the value delivered Fundamentally is software first or it's AI first. You know, that's what that's what Stock means when he says AI is the runtime. AI is the execution engine. You know, we yeah. spend so much time worrying about business execution and who's doing how you, how you do it better. I think that the idea is that if you have, you know, more and more use cases that are being enabled by AI as the core of the firm, that becomes the execution arm of the firm. Take an Amazon. Uh, an Amazon warehouse is a really interesting thing. I mean, there's a bunch of people in the Amazon warehouse running around, but the software is telling the people where to go, not the other way around. Yeah. Uh, and so I think it's a fundamental shift, really, how companies are thought about with lots of implications across the board.
0: Yeah. You know, well, you know, one thing that might be, uh, you know, interesting here is, again, as I, was, as I was reading through the book, I thought you guys talked about the challenges, because I've even done this in my own roles in the past is trying to set the stage about why companies are applying technology, right? They don't just apply it for the fun of the technologies though. A lot of engineers would want to do that, right? They're applying because they're solving a business problem because they think it's going to give them a competitive edge. And you you guys talk uh, about these three challenges, scale, scope, and learning. So maybe, maybe talk a little bit more about that. I mean, why? Because getting yeah. one level deeper, why is AI making such a big difference?
1: Yeah, no, it's interesting. I, I, I think that's really the What dawned on us is we were pulling together the, the material for this book, that something fundamental was shifting, not just in the fact that the AI was solving individual problems and driving individual use cases, but when you have a whole bunch of AI there, the whole nature of the firm changes. And so traditional constraints on managing a firm had been removed. Like, you know, traditionally, since the Industrial Revolution, we tried really hard to manage firms to drive scale, like in a manufacturing plant, and you have standardization of work and people do the same kinds of thing over and over and over again to try and do as much stuff as possible, or in a bank and processing loans or something like that. The thing that dawned on us is that when you have software doing these things, when you have algorithms that essentially are defining whether or not somebody will get a loan on on AND Financial, then the whole nature of the scalability of the process changes dramatically, right? then there's essentially zero marginal cost. I can serve a million people just as well as I can serve five. In fact, I can serve a million people much better than I can ser- serve five because I can learn uh, from the million people that I'm serving and gra- gather data, make it in-processed as better. And so in, in many ways, the, it sort of changes the whole concept of scale for for growing a firm, which is uh, which is a huge deal. Um, scope is the same way. Not only we you know when you have a software-based firm core, uh, as you would, say, in Airbnb or at a Facebook or something like that, you can plug a bunch of different things into that software core much more easily. And so all of a sudden go across industries very, very easily. And, you know, Airbnb can have an experiences marketplace that plugs into its own system for allocating rooms to people very easily and use the data to gather from one application to drive value in, in the other way. Uh, and so, you know, scale, scope, and then finally learning, it, it's almost like an obvious one in the sense that the more people you serve, the more data you get, the more opportunities you have for learning. And the easier it is to aggregate all the information, uh, much more so when you have, you know, a bunch of algorithms and databases gathering all the stuff uh, than if you have a bunch of scattered people trying to figure this thing out uh, under some sort of a management structure. Uh, and so, Scale constraints, scope constraints, learning constraints are removed from the firm, and you can have these organizations do some pretty remarkable things.
2: And by the way, these three dimensions—scale, scope, and learning—are what define the operating model of a company. Right. Right. It's important to sort of think about. That's what companies are actually geared to do fundamentally. And this lesson we learned from you know Al Chandler uh, in the last century when he was looking at American capitalism and trying to understand. Why American capitalism did so well. It's because of this focus on scale and scope that the companies had.
0: Yeah. No, and I and I and I think it's the the way you guys brought that together in the book, I think, you know, I I've heard it described a lot of different ways, and I think it it really makes sense. And then in the examples you Example, you examples you guys use about how companies are weaving it in because we, you know, we were talking before that we have a previous podcast with um, with with Stitch Fix, uh, you know, and 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 again, I think particularly listening to their model and some of the other ones I've heard of how it's not just about blindly applying the you know artificial intelligence and you know putting a, some data scientists in a room and say go do something. It's really about using it to. In, increase the, the, the scope and the scale of the company. And I mean, and, and it's not just about pulling humans. You, I think you guys, if I remember right, you said something in the book about uh, not just replacing humans, but maybe moving humans to the edges. Did I get that right? Like basically, exactly.
1: I mean, there's humans everywhere, right? So, so there there are lots of managers and, and workers at Amazon. There are lots of managers, workers at Google and Microsoft, it's fix and, and so forth. But it I think the way to do it is in some ways you move the humans off the critical path. In other words, mm. I can serve a customer. I can, I can, uh, you know, I'm a customer of Stitch Fix. They know a lot about me. The AI is pretty good. It will generate some options, right? So it'll generate a way to okay, my, I get my next box. Here's the, the different things that the Marco can get. Um, and then humans curate that. Uh, but you still have like, you know, in some ways the process is enabled is accelerated by the fact that you have this AI that's actually serving out the options, then the humans can kind of tweak that a little bit and make it better. You know, and and so the, the humans in some ways are supervising the AI in much the same way as it can happen in any other business. Like if I'm on a, you know, my Amazon account or or whatever it is, any exceptions can be handled by humans, but the basic operating model can fire off options and and predictions and and essentially get things going for the firm. And yeah. so that removes the bottleneck. So I I can still add value to it as a human being, but I'm not in there in the actual critical path of execution. So I'm I'm at in some ways I'm out of the runtime. I can still go out there and design it and tweak it and evolve it and check it and make sure that it's doing things right. But I'm not constraining it as bottleneck.
0: Hmm. Yeah, you know the the way you the way you describe it there, Marco. I'm wondering if if the now, and I, I know that uh, people have stated this much more eloquently than I'm about to, but you know, basically, when, when we adopt technology in business, it does seem like there's a there's a transition period where figuring out how to integrate it with the hum- humanity in the companies, to integrate it with the human process, it takes time. I mean, like the how long it took us to you know use spreadsheets and word processors and personal computers, and and it's you know because it's not like AI is new, it's just yeah. that it's yeah. really coming into its own.
2: Yeah, but also Ben, I mean, I think the thing we, we note is that the, that the it's not like if you put AI over existing processes, then you will just make the existing process perhaps more, more mm. efficient. I think the key is to redesign the processes, right? To take advantage of the technology and part of what we've sort of seen in the history of technology adoption in companies is that those organizations that can transform their processes and their architecture, their organizational architecture, To match what the technology enables, they do way better and survive a lot longer than those that say, "No, we're not going to adjust." And so that's part, and that's where I think you know, there's all this talk about digital transformation. Oh, you know, we're just going to go cloud. We're going to add AI. You know, sprinkle some AI magic on our organization. But if you don't do the hard work of actually transforming your organization with it, it's going to be for naught.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. and I think that's really important. I mean, that's why. You, know, you make a big point in the book that it's really a different architecture for the firm, right? The, the traditional firm is a bunch of silos, is a bunch of individual teams, individual functions, individual business units that are designed to do things as autonomously as possible, because that's what humans like. You don't want to yeah. work in a team of a thousand people. You want to work in a team of five people, maybe a team of 10 people. But as it gets bigger, and much more complex and, and hard to manage. The data doesn't work the same way. Data knows no boundaries. And so the, the data that uh, Amazon might have on Kareem is useful across every function or every sort of bit of, uh, of, of AI that, 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 it, that it can use. And so it makes sense to create an architecture for the firm that's much more horizontal and much more uh, much more of a platform structure that shares everything across business units. And that's that's the hard part in the transformation process and if you look at firms like a, you know fidelity or walmart that have been working at this for quite some time mm-hmm. their transformation challenge is not so much just deploying the technology because technology is available it's on the cloud it's great it's fantastic but a lot of it is changing sort of this the, the way the organization functions and the way that it's structured and the way that it's its culture works and the value systems and all these different kinds of things that Uh, They essentially turn it inside out. All of a sudden, the technology is running the operations instead of the the, the operating managers.
0: Yeah. You know, I I really did definitely, you know, considering my background and having worked in kind of, you know, the enterprise IT operations space in particular, the way you guys describe that made a lot of sense because one of the things I've seen over time is there's a there's always been a tendency for the last couple of decades is like, oh, we're going to go apply this, you know, whatever the new shiny thing is in, in, uh, in technology. We're going to apply that and things are suddenly going to change. And there's always been an underlying like yeah. culture bit. It's like, you know, guys, you can apply the technology all you want, but the technology was built, you know, take cloud, for example. A lot of the benefits of that have gone to cloud computing. And I think you guys kind of touch on this in the book is that, but it's, it's based on certain changes you make in the culture of your company and if you just like well lift and shift and move things there you're not getting the benefits so it's it, it was it's um and I, I don't think a lot of companies realize that
2: no and I, and I think the fault lies both with the technologists and also with the managers <laughs> so you know pox in both their houses i think that's true I think I, I think I think technologists think well it's like a rational thing like i've oh, got this new shiny object of course it's the you know the universal solvent for everything, and it's going to work on. It's going to magically solve all of our, our problems. So let's go invest invest invest. And managers come back and say, "I gave you all this money, nothing has happened. Hey, what's going on?" Because that, they haven't come together and said, "You know, this is a this is a, as much as this is a, as a technological change. This is the organizational change." And we need to do that too. It's the
1: reason why so many pilots kind of get stuck. You know, you do a pilot on some cool new shiny yeah. technology, right? And yeah. the pilot looks great. Wow, we got all these different uh, results and exactly what we expected. And then everything stops, yeah. <laughs> right?
2: <laughs> I'm sure our audience has like a,
1: maybe you should do a podcast
2: on all the pilots that have stalled amongst your audience. Yeah, it, it
1: well. why they stopped, because all of a sudden people in the organization went, oh my God, this is- what I have to change actually, how I work? Yeah, I have to change all the stuff to actually make this thing really, you know, deploy across the business and, and work. And, and all of a it's like, I don't want to do all that. And so the pilot was great, nice, shiny pilot, but, you know, let's keep it- uh, let's keep you know, the, 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 let's skip it away from the actual core of the of the
0: business. Right, right, right. We made we made the CEO happy. We did what he read in a magazine somewhere. Let's move. On. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A couple. We read all those magazine articles. That to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah, because it, it uh, you know, yeah, you know, do you 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 guys are exactly right. I mean, it just came to mind. Like I've, you know, like some of the things recently, like with big data and stuff like that, and these all the all the hype and it suddenly just disappeared off the map and you know one one thing that was really interesting I think you guys did really well in the book is tying the the business models and this idea of how a you know firms work like you said the firm firms operating model with the technology basis and you talked about this concept of an AI factory which I just found fascinating so maybe maybe talk a little bit about that what because you you basically said that's kind of the core of this new, you know, technological model. So talk about what that means.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So look, I think again the thesis is that the core of the firm will have an AI factory. And that core impacts both the operating model and the business model. The business model will be defined as value creation and value capture. All the ways in which People come to you uh, and and transact with you. uh, And the reasons for that is value creation. And all the ways in which you make a profit, make money from that transaction is value capture. So that's what defines a business model. Now, what we see is that the AI factory helps you both create value and capture value, but also drives your operating model, helps you achieve scale, scope, and learning. And for us, the, the notion is that, of course, the input of the AI factory are data, right? Data coming in of all types all different, uh, uh, different variety at an at at unprecedented scale. And the data has to be processed and cleaned up. By the way, massive underinvestment in most companies on the data pipelines, right? right. Like we just don't invest enough. Is all the dirty janitorial work that needs to be done to get the data sets cleaned and ready and integrated. You know, no CIO got famous for creating the data pipeline. <laughs> right. But that's the problem, right? Because there's no given to that aspect. So data pipelines are super important. And that fits into an algorithmic engine that is making, you know, is doing three things. Either making a prediction about the future state of some action that needs to be taken, classifying events that are happening inside the term, or automating processes along the way. And all those three things are happening through uh, as an outcome of the of the AI factory. And there's an infrastructure uh, system that can take those predictions, classifications, automation, and deploy them at scale. That's the, uh, that, that's the underlying AI factory that we see. Now here's the thing that that struck us and was like a big aha for both Marco and I, which was McDonald's has a hamburger factory, right? And they make hamburgers at scale, serving billions of Big Macs. I need to stop going there. But uh, (laughs) uh, the hamburger factory at McDonald's looks very different from the steel factory that GM uses or Ford uses to make their steel for their cars. Very different. But the AI factory at McDonald's is going to look exactly the same as the AI factory at Ford and GM. Mm. And that's the key thing. And that factory also looks the same. in in Google and Facebook and Microsoft and in Financial and Alibaba and Flipkart and so on and so on. And so this notion is that the AI factory is the generic capability that we all need across our companies to both build our companies, but also to integrate into these various networks that are out there uh, that are doing these things.
1: And that part, I mean, it's a huge revolution in in management thinking, right? Because if you think about it, For the last 20, 30 years, everybody's been talking about focus, core capabilities, stick to your knitting, you know, really understand vertical expertise. And when you think about these universal capabilities around analytics, data sciences, uh, data processing, uh, AI algorithm design, and, and, and even algorithmic ethics that are really general across any industry, we're talking about sort of general capabilities that can attack almost any industrial problem. You know, you have companies like you know Zebra Medical Imaging that do uh, you know radiology and use AI to detect uh, you know anything from fractures to uh, to heart conditions, uh, and they have super minority of doctors in the company. Ninety-five percent of the employees are not from the healthcare sector. You know, they're a bunch of uh, analysts, uh, data processing people, computer science people. The, the the founders are not from the healthcare environment. It's really interesting, and so. You know, from the perspective of the managers that are in existing established industries, it's a really scary thing because you have, you know, a company like Amazon or a company like Ant Financial in China that can come after your own vertical expertise with a fundamentally different set of assets, but different architecture, and different set of skill sets in the organization.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think that's really fascinating. I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons why this is so revolutionary. And, you know, now one, one thing you guys mentioned too, cause I, I definitely, I want to, um, definitely touch on a little bit, like how companies actually think about this and some of the strategic planning that you guys are talking about. But one more thing on the AI factory, I, I'd like to, you, you guys mentioned the idea of weak versus strong AI with the context that I, and I, and I know I've seen this many times my, myself is that there's a, there's a tendency to think that the solutions and the, you know, kind of the approaches here always have, to, are going to be super complicated is, is AI is going to go off and do some magic in a black box. And then, you know, something amazing happens. Whereas I think you, you guys do get at The fact that it's not, it's not always complicated, but it's, it's, it's always practical and and, 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 provides value. So maybe talk a little bit about that. What, what do you guys bring that kind of, that, that, that nuance out?
1: Again, the, really interesting insight for us was that really basic AI can do very remarkable things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's why we get all excited about the, you know, the fake Rembrandt at the beginning of the book. Yeah, that was great.
0: Run.
1: And it's like, you know, you, ha- you have a team of, of you know, smart analysts and all that, you know, doing the work of a genius, right? Um, mere yeah. mortals, right? mere <laughs> mortals. It's, <going> <laughs> are, it's not a team of Rembrandt, right? And you know, a lot of people uh, give us grief for that because it's like, oh, you're not really talking about AI, you're talking about some very basic things. And, it, and I'm like, but that's the whole point. The whole point is some very simple algorithms can do some really dramatic things. And once you replace even a simple process that it's got human in, uh, humans as bottlenecks with an algorithm, fundamentally, the operating implications are completely different. I and mean, mm. you don't need the super fancy, uh, that, you know. You don't need reinforcement learning to do this. You can take some pretty basic algorithms, you know, recognizing edges to you know figure out uh, impact of radiology to have a fundamental impact on the radiology field. And yeah, exactly. work. Yeah, and and
2: also like you know, like we and similarly, we don't need to wait for the science fiction future. Right, it's already mm. here. Right, because what we see are. These algorithms are actually very fragile, right? They do one thing and one thing only, but they do it really well. And compared to that particular human task, that AI was gonna work really well, like playing Go, or playing chess as we've seen before. Uh, and now is sort of recognizing images, right? Or recognizing tumors. It does this one thing really well. And what's going on is that we can create a collection, an ensemble of these algorithms to do a bunch of things in sequence or in parallel and looked magical for us on the other side, like how is it that Google Photos knows that I want to find those pictures of my tacos, right? Uh, and and recognize them from my image set. Well, those are a bunch of algorithms that are that are compiled together, but they're all doing something very narrow. It's not a universal Star Trek computer that's doing all of these things. And I think realizing that this is both weak AI, it's narrow, but it's also achievable, Like right? You as a company, can make this happen now is what mm. what's sort of important for us to to recognize internally, but then to also write about.
1: Yeah, yeah. and you know, sort of you know, thinking of AI as replacing a human being in some ways, it's it's wrong, right? It's in the sense that it's different. You know, one of the questions, another question that we get asked a lot is, you know, when is it going to be that AI is smarter than humans? And you know. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and the answer if is I knew do you, that. Yeah. Like, how do you know you're not there yet? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like if you go and, and uh, you know, if you look at the Google search engine, right? Is that smarter than I am? Uh, it's like in many ways, yes, hell, yes, it knows a lot of things that I don't know, you're right? Uh, but it's different, right? And so, why should AI necessarily emulate a human way of thinking about problems? Maybe it's just going to be very different. It's going to be an ensemble of these dumb algorithms, yeah. relatively speaking. That can do remarkable things. In some ways, things that individual humans or even organizational humans could not even come close yeah, to doing. Yeah. And
2: I think I think my favorite perspective on this is from Peter Domingos, who's a computer science professor at uh University of Washington, wrote this great book called The Master Algorithm. What he said is, you know, people always ask him as a CS professor, you know, when it, you know, are AI is gonna replace humans, are AI is gonna replace managers or executives? And what he said was. Mm-hmm. You know, AI is not going to replace managers, but managers with AI are going to replace managers without AI. (laughs) You know, (laughs) that was brilliant. Like that's that's exactly the perspective that we also subscribe to, which is that this stuff is now so deep and so integral and so available that those that can jump on this and figure it out for themselves and for their companies will have an advantage over those that
0: don't. Yeah, no, no, I, I think you're right. And let, let's, let's talk a little, little bit about that. Cause you, um, you, you give some ways to start approaching this and how you start making that transition. Because I, I think an, another thing that I picked up, uh, reading the book is this, this is not just hundred year old companies versus 10 year old companies. It's also, like you said, the culture, you know, there are modern software based companies that are not there yet. You know, they're still operating in, what you might call a more traditional model, even through using modern technology. So how does a company at whatever stage start to tackle this? Like what's, you know, how do they start taking those steps in the right direction?
1: One of the things we emphasize in, in the book is that virtually nobody has this right yet. So and it's not about traditional firms versus, versus modern firms. I think that uh, there are certain things that traditional firms have taken very seriously, like for example, privacy in many instances uh, or uh, you know, cybersecurity and various other things that sometimes the more modern firms haven't taken to heart in the same way. And they haven't built systems that are enabled to protect you know, users, society, and so on from misuse. And this is where you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about the ethics of what we call digital field scope and learning, because you know, when you're driving sort of, you know, information for a couple of billion people, the ways to screw it up are, you know, have enormous consequences. Obviously, right. so that it, it 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 makes the the problem sort of all the more important and challenging at the at the level of society. And so, from that perspective, in some ways, just like old style organizations have a lot to learn from new ones, some of the newer organizations have a bunch to learn from old ones as well. And so, I think that. Over the next ten years, I think we'll see a lot of organizations trying to develop a little bit of a hybrid model, in a sense, where the uh, you know, so sort of the kind of scalability, scope, impact, and learning impact that you can have is going to be in some ways moderated by the constraints set up by you know managing these things so they actually act properly. Uh, you know, around mm. issues like bias, around issues like privacy, uh, etc.
0: Yeah. I mean that happens. That happens a lot, right? Because there's a there's a lot of times this kind of underlying bias that came out of the development of this space, in particular, some of the new technology companies, where it's. I mean, <laughs> Mark yeah. Zuckerberg has a few quotes attributed to him, which were, you know, problematic in terms of you know youth versus age and experience, right? But I, I it, it, does seem like there's a transformation going on. Is like a lot, of, even some of these original companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter, or whatever, are, are coming face to face with the the fact that, you know, there's some things that just haven't changed. You know, you yeah. still have and, to have wise leaders.
1: Yeah, I know. And, and the wisdom is in some ways trickier. I mean, I I, uh, I wrote a book years ago about ecosystems and platforms and how, and even you know, for my own personal, I'll, I'll take the blame on this one. It's like I was such an optimist. I think, you know, ecosystems, wonderful things, you know, these computing platforms are just amazing things because they enable millions of people to innovate and do great things. And there's a really positive story around that. But uh, just in the same way that platforms can enable people to innovate and do cool stuff, the same platforms can enable people to do all kinds of terrible things uh, if mm-hmm. they're used wrong. You know, a news platform or pl- platform a with data about uh, you know, billions of people can be misused in all kinds of different ways. And, and some of the more nefarious applications are coming to light over the last few years. And I think that's where the real thinking in some ways is happening right now. And you see a lot of computer scientists... Uh, as well as a few of us in, in business schools that are spending a lot of time thinking about how you design systems with the right ethics built in from the ground up.
2: Yeah, the big revelation for for me and, and us has been, you know, talking to our colleagues across uh, in the computer science department at Harvard, uh, because all of a sudden they're like saying, oh, yeah, I'm studying computational fairness. I'm like, what? Like, I thought <laughs> the philosophy issue, like, why are you as a computer scientist? Thinking about this in a mathematical way, in an algorithmic way. And you know, what they're realizing is that now this ability for us to scale to hundreds of millions of people actually has fairness um, implications, right? So for example, you know, like human beings, all types of every human being is biased one way or the other. When you are in a traditional setting, your bias is limited to your local perspective. <laughs> right? Yeah. Whether you're a bank manager at a branch, you just, yeah, you discriminate against one A, B, or C. You just limit that discrimination to that one particular branch, and then you get found out, and you get corrected, and so forth. But now, if we use that data to train our algorithms, now we can discriminate at scale, <laughs> right? <laughs> now, we can do bias at scale. And so, yeah. I, think, I think this notion that that again, this is both the engineering and the business and the philosophy coming together and taking this seriously is a really important uh, distinction for, for everybody to sort of think about and, and, and incorporate in how they, they, they design their algorithms, how they scale their algorithms, and they think about the products and services that they're launching. Yeah, well
0: that's that's a really interesting point because we, we've had a few people on this program that have you know talked about the, the ethics side of that. And yeah, there's always this ongoing friction, but there does seem to be a transition is that the, you know, the way it's going to get solved is by the people actually writing the code that are actually doing the work, starting to really truly take yeah. some responsibility for it.
1: You need, a, you need a multifaceted solution to this. I mean, I think absolutely the, the core of this, you know, you have to engineer it in from the ground up, but at the same time, I think uh, it's also a managerial responsibility, a leadership yeah. responsibility, a board Governance responsibility. I mean, the board of Facebook right now is under the gun for, you know, ensuring that the company complies with uh, all kinds of different uh, standards around privacy and uh, and related uh, issues. And so, I think every, I think we need to, to think about it from an engineering perspective, from a managerial perspective. <laughs> Uh, yeah. It's really changing the game. Uh, we're managing algorithms instead of managing people more often than not these days, and so I think we need to understand how to do them. You know, I know, I know a bunch
2: of programmers, right? They're my friends, and they're you know they're they're not out there trying to be biased, right? They're yeah. a bunch of nice people. The yeah.
0: people
2: uh, some of them, uh, most of them. Uh, but the the point is, it's, it's naivete. Right, it's naivety. We didn't think that this would. This is what we were doing. You know, there's a sense of you know in psychology of this unconscious bias. Like it's just yeah. So we we don't want to get into a blame game. Like oh, you bad person, you. This is what you yeah. did. I think we want to be like hey, like you were you you didn't even know this is what was happening. Let's learn about it and then let's be constructive about how we fix the problems instead of sort of like saying you evil person. This is what you intended to do from from day one.
0: I think that makes a lot of sense because there has, I think we've kind of swung back and forth between that. And one thing that was, um, you know, interesting, a couple of things I wanted to to poke a little bit at kind of in this area is you you guys talked about two things that really stood out to me in this area that I hadn't heard about before is one is that you brought up the story of Fidelity and, and how they made, they were making this transition and they built an AI center of excellence, which really reminds me a lot of. A lot of companies created a cloud center of excellence, and it was this idea of kind of pulling this together and really kind of uh, getting a, you know a space where those decisions can be worked through. And you talk about you know information fiduciary and and like this, it's coming kind with of some new ideas. So so in in that particular context is. Is is that is that some of what mechanisms do you see that the the leaders can actually start to take? I mean, one of this is they need to start thinking about this and taking it seriously and educating themselves. But but also from a mechanism perspective, is it those kind of things are going to provide kind of a mechanism for starting to talk through this or?
2: Our belief is that this has to be top down. Mm. It can't be, you know, the fast company change agents are going to get slaughtered if they try to this off themselves it has to be we need the the change agents inside the company but we need top-down support and what we saw fidelity was from the ceo abby johnson down taking a deep interest in this work and committing to learning committing to surfacing the issues and making it happen so we've been in sessions with some of their executives where you know the entire c-suite is there learning about uh, you know, reinforcement learning and unsupervised, unsupervised learning and supervised learning and all that kind of stuff. And I'm, I, I'm they're taking notes and they're trying to put it in the context of their business. Why? Well, A, you need to understand this stuff because you, you're going to be asked to make decisions. So you need to understand those decisions. But two, I think, is that the signaling it provides to the rest of the organization that this is important, that this is where the C-suite is thinking about is catalyzing. And mm-hmm. so the Center for Excellence is one one thing, you know, we always, um, you know, shook our, uh, our heads trying to understand, like, why does, uh, did Sundar try at Google do an AI first announcement saying Google is AI first now when they were already AI first, right? Like they were already beating MIT, Stanford, Harvard in publications in AI, Right. right? They were already creating the most patents in AI. Like, why is the company that's already leading in AI saying, oh, now we're AI first? And when we realized what, was that as much this was as much as a message to internal Google people, hey guys, this is where we're gonna be embedding this everywhere. So it was a trans it was a message to customers, but importantly to the Google people saying, Hey, get on the bandwagon, learn this stuff and figure out how to incorporate these things. So from Fidelity to Google, what we see is that the top-down leadership is so so important in making this happen and then there are different structures you can create a, a ai center of excellence you can sort of say we're going to put a ton of resources we're going to reorganize ourselves to be able to enable these kinds of technologies many options but the top-down leadership super critical
0: hmm. well i guess in kind of putting a bow on this whole thing because it's been a fascinating discussion i really really enjoyed the book and i think what you guys are putting out here is very very timely where does it go from here? So what are you guys doing coming up with this you know, topic? I guess part of it, you're going to. You we just finished go. the fourth
2: book. You're asking us for the next book
0: now? Come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which your next oh book? Oh my God. <laughs> you're like you're like
1: my editor at <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the harvest of press. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, in all seriousness, well, I mean, I, I, I,
2: like, kidding aside. No, I think, look, I think, the, uh, and I'll defer to Marco as well on his thinking, my sense is this book, lays out a framework right and says what are the leading companies doing uh that we can all learn from and i think the 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 question for the incumbents and the startups is now what do we do right how do we now build ourselves to be in this way and in many ways i think that's probably the more important challenge uh the so the incumbent transformation that we sort of see happening and that, that we see companies trying to adopt, right? You look at what Disney is trying to do in this space, you know, Walmart is trying to do, and I think those are super important questions. Like, you know, you want to weep for Nokia for not being able to make the transition, right? From a, a product company to a platform company. And, you know, the Scandinavian economy got impacted because Nokia went bust in the consumer business yeah. and we can't afford our, our best firms, the GE's, the Boeings, the Fours, the GMs to to disappear like that and cause all of these externalities for their employees, but the rest of the economy as well. So I, I really take that that that's like a big mandate in front of us to think through.
1: I think it's, it's such an exciting time right now because I feel like there is a huge opportunity to study this. Right, so there's a major major change that uh, we've talked about, uh, and when the model of the firm changes, for us everything changes. So and there's a lot that we know so far about the engineering side of AI. There's much less that we know right now about the business side, the economic mm. side of AI. And so we're spending a lot of time thinking about this. We're engaging with a bunch of firms to see the challenges and the opportunities from the, from the ground up. Uh, we've also, uh, we also have a laboratory here at, at Harvard that uh, kareem started about 10 years ago that i'm now a uh, co-investigator and together with uh, david parks from computer science and eva guinan from the med school we're looking at a whole bunch of different uh, research programs that we've ramped up to try to understand a whole bunch of different basic challenges like what is the value of data you know data is the is the new oil the new moat whatever you want but like how is it different and how does it change and how is it how does it vary from one situation to the other and what makes data valuable and, and uh, what is really the competitive advantage relating to that. So we can model that, we can measure that. We can, we've done empirical experiments. We're doing more of that. Uh, we're doing uh, empirical projects to look at how advanced everyone is to try to get a, a cut at where the world stands with regards to information technology and AI. There's a lot of work to do, but it's an exciting time to go out there and get a sense for, you know, how people are doing and what the what the leading lights are doing and, and how everybody else is doing and it's trying to catch up. Yeah.
2: And Ben, can I make a, like a selfish request? Yes. Okay. This, this is based on, you know, you said when is the next book coming out? So, you know, we learn by example and analogy. So your audience, your listeners, are deep in these questions. And so we welcome them to reach out to us and give us examples, give us case studies that we can study and learn from. Uh, because that is at the at the bleeding edge, at the at the surface of oh, I'm trying to do this transformation in my company, where I observe this company do this do something cool. We're so open to sort of yeah. input from your from your listeners. Uh, because mm. that, that's how we learn that's how we get better uh and you know we're always looking to do cool cases yeah. uh, uh on them so uh we're, find, us, we're, yeah. find us on
1: linkedin or wherever
2: yeah, exactly yeah. Yeah, so yeah we're all like, we're on linkedin to happy to connect and then see if there's a fit in terms of uh, what we're trying to do and what they what they come up with as well
0: oh that's great I think you you'll definitely get some takers on that and uh, and again i i i think um the way you guys wrote this and the way you've approached this, it's it's very approachable. I, I think it's um you know it's gonna help a lot of people that have struggled with this really get their hands around it and I think it's a great contribution to the space and wish you guys all the luck. I think this is gonna be great going forward and we'll we'll have to we'll have to stay in touch. And everybody, you know, listening again, read the book. I think it was it was uh I, I don't know if, if say it's an easy read because it's a lot of deep things, but it's a good read. It's it's a it's an I, I I'm actually going to go read it again because I want to really, you know, get some of these concepts uh, wrap my head around them myself. So uh, Marco and Kareem, thank you so much for coming on. Um, look forward to see what you guys do next. Thank, thank you. Thank Brent. you so much. It was a lot for,
1: of fun. Yeah, great conversation. Thank you so much.
0: Absolutely. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And as always, uh, look for the next episode in your feed. Rate and review us so other people can find us. And thanks for listening.
2: Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic is a cloud-native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. Sumo Logic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to Sumologic.com. For more on Masters of Data, go to mastersofdata.com and subscribe, and spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.